he said that we were all like Daleks, uh, but inside the Dalek case, there was a dervish. And that's Dalek as in Doctor Who? Yes, that's okay. right. Okay. Yeah. And he, if only we could open up that Dalek uh, armor, the dervish would emerge from inside the uh, robot. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley. Joining me is my co-host, Elon Martin. Hello. Today, we will be interviewing Father Joseph Azizi. Joseph is a Maronite priest, has his PhD in ancient history, uh, was a practicing attorney for several years, and is a published author of several books and academic papers. Among those papers are several on George Gurdjieff's work and related uh, related topics and ideas. He is also the author of the recently published book, Gurdjieff, Mysticism, Contemplation, and Exercises. This was published by Oxford University Press just in January. And as we'll see during the interview, um, I know from my perspective, it's one of the most important books to come out about Gurdjieff in decades, I'd say. Probably, I don't know, the last 50 years or so. So to start out with, we want to give a warm welcome to Joseph Azizi. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Thanks, Harrison. Thanks, Elon. Maybe jumping into our first question, can you tell us a bit about what led you to finding the Gurdjieff work and how you first got involved? Yes. I'd like to start with when I was actually three or four years old because it's going to become relevant later on. I, I was young and <clears throat> my father was setting up Christmas decorations in the house and I asked him what he was doing and he explained the Christmas story to me. And at that moment I had a mystical experience. Now, children can have mystical experiences more readily because as Gurdjieff said, they're more in essence, the higher parts of centers are closer to them. The centers work more in harmony. It's not unusual for children to have these ineffable experiences. This one has remained with me all my life. So I knew that there was a divine dimension and it was intimately associated for me with Christmas and the story of the birth of our Lord. Anyhow, that, that's quite fundamental for me, that experience. As I was growing up, I have to say I was underachieving pretty badly as a teenager. Uh, more than that, I was in a fairly constant state of fear. I was in a constant state of neurosis and I was going nowhere fast. A very good friend of mine named Glyn introduced me to Gurdjieff. He took me to a bookshop. He showed me a picture of Gurdjieff. He said something about Gurdjieff and his ideas. And he explained it to me in terms of Daleks and dervishes. This is original Glyn. Hmm. Uh, he said that we were all like Daleks, 
but an inside the Dalek case, there was a dervish. And that's Dalek as in Doctor Who? Yes, that's okay. right. Okay. Yeah. If only we could open up that Dalek uh, armor, the dervish would emerge from inside the uh, robot. Hmm. And he also said to me that he'd met some people who'd been in Gurdjieff groups and they were people of an extraordinary quality. That made an impression on me. And then not long after that, within about two or three years, I met by chance a lady who, she was quite elderly at that time, but when she was younger, she told me she had been a pupil of George Aidy, who had himself been a pupil of Gurdjieff and Uspensky. And she served as my sort of introduction to Mr. Aidy. I rang Mr. Aidy and um, Mrs. Aidy answered the phone. We had a very short but good conversation. She put me on to Mr. Aidy. And when I spoke to him, he said, well, look, as you're a law student, he said, you can't come up to the group right now. You've got too much on. You've got to concentrate on that because the work demands a commitment. And I said to Mr. Aidy, but Mr. Aidy, if I obtained objective consciousness, wouldn't that help me pass my law exam? <laughs> and he laughed, the best-natured laugh I've ever heard in my life. And um, he said, yes. He said, if you had objective consciousness, it would help you with your law exams. He said, but then objective consciousness isn't so easy to come by. And um, that was a wonderful start to our relationship. So I, I would, he invited me to phone him, and I did. I phoned him regularly. He gave me, he suggested books I should read. And then after I'd read the books, I'd discuss them with him. And he invited me up to Newport to see what they had there. But he was quite clear. This was a stage of preparation for me. I had to come back later on. And so when I finished the law degree, um, I contacted him. He invited me back up. We had another meeting, and that was an extraordinary meeting too. And then after that, uh, I was accepted to join him. That was 1982 by now. And so I was with Mr. Rady until he died some seven years later in 1989. Can you tell us a bit about what the practical dimension of working with George and his wife, Helen, was? Like what kind of um, activities or, um, or exercises were you given to carry out in your everyday lives? Basically, what kind of, what kind of just practical dimension was involved in the, the, the work of those seven years? Yes. Well, in some ways, the most important thing of all was really the contact with Mr. and Mrs. Aidy, because there was something about them which could pass from person to person. And if you were open to it, you received something directly from being with them. I, I realize that now. I didn't realize it so much at the time. 
when I first met them, I thought of them as teachers, almost like school teachers, uh, able to impart information. But it was more than that. And it was more even than their example, important as their example was. Things could take place in their presence which couldn't take place otherwise. And I can give you some examples later on. And in fact, that was also true of Mrs. Staveley, whom I met later on. But more specifically, when I first met Mr. Rady, one of the things he did was challenge my ideas. It was as if he was trying to reorder my thought, to have me thinking logically, and at the same time to have a feeling element in the thought. That's why we initially worked with um, books because I couldn't come up and join them. And so he asked me to read things, then we discussed them. And it wasn't just an intellectual grasp of the ideas he was looking at. He was looking for a feeling response as well. And so he was helping me to read the books with more than just my head. But then when he did actually invite me up to Newport, he observed, for example, how I moved. And he asked me, well, can you stop putting your fingers to your face the way you do? And so I had to interrupt that habit while I was speaking with him. And then I went to put my fingers to my face five minutes later, and he saw it at once. He didn't have to say anything. I could see he saw it, and um, he was able to draw the lesson from that. It's not so easy to interrupt these mechanical habits. Mm -hmm. And that was a very good, very gentle way of showing that to me. And then when I actually joined the group, well, first of all, he, he asked for a commitment. He said, you don't just come to the group to see as a sort of trial period, you commit. And I agreed to the idea of the commitment, not really knowing what I was saying, mm -hmm. but he had insisted on that. And fortunately he had, because that stayed with me during some difficult periods. And then when we went up, the first thing really that he taught us was for morning preparation. Mm. We had what he called a combined meeting where all the students came together. There were about a hundred with us. We, he gave a preparation. I didn't understand at the time what it was. But that preparation is one of the ones which I have transcribed and placed in the book. Mm -hmm. And then after he had given us that, we sat there silently while Mrs. Aidy played some of the music. And that was very deliberate. They used the music to extend that contemplative state which we were in. Mm. And also it extends it, it continues it, but it changes it very subtly. It introduces a new influence, the influence of Gurdjieff's music. Mm -hmm. So it was also preparing the feeling 
the whole person is mobilized by the uh, preparation, which aims to bring the mind, the feeling and the organic instinct into harmony. And also they're lifted up at the same time. There's a certain aspiration. And then the music, which brings a predominantly feeling impact. Although you also sensed in your body having someone like Mrs. Aidy, who had been a major concert pianist in England, um, having someone like her play the piano while you were there, the vibrations entered your body at once. Then after that, Mr. Aidy brought some ideas and we discussed the ideas. He gave us a task for this month. We took that away and then you'd come back for weekend work, so that Sunday, uh, that Saturday and Sunday, there was weekend work. And again, the weekend work began with the morning preparation. And the weekend work preparations were gently shorter and simpler than the ones on the Wednesday night. Then we'd have a meal together, a breakfast. Mr. Aidy would give a theme for the day and then there'd be a briefing and Mr. Aidy would discuss what we'd be doing. And he had the most extraordinary practical intelligence. Um, the way he explained the jobs we'd be on, what we'd do, how we'd work on them. So then you'd go out for about three, three and a half hours working generally in a workshop or in the open with someone. And Mr. Rady would walk around from time to time checking and uh, watching. And often he didn't have to say anything, he'd just look. But he would sometimes come over to the job and it was a confrontation. <laughs> and then um, at lunch, there'd be a reading from All and Everything. We'd have lunch exchange questions, we'd bring our observations of the morning work. Mr. Aidy would say something, give us clues, we'd go back to the afternoon, and then the same thing in the evening, and that was the end of the weekend work. Mm. And then during the week, there'd be group meetings with Mr. and Mrs. Aidy, and there'd also be work at the movements with Mrs. Aidy. So there was the engagement, the living engagement with those two people. There was the preparation and the exercises which they gave us. There was a practical work together. There were tasks and disciplines they gave us to use during the week. And then there'd be exchanges on those tasks and disciplines with them during the week. There were movements with Mrs. Aidy at which Mr. Rady sometimes assisted. And they'd be reading from all and everything during the week. The number of pages would be allocated. So all those things were part of the equation. Wow. So, yeah, so your weeks must have been pretty full when you were, uh, when you were engaging in that work to, uh, you know. So were you, were you personally working um, or going to school during this time? Um, so were, were these kind of, so were the Wednesday, was it like a Wednesday evening thing and then you'd go for the weekend work and then you'd um, kind of engage in your, your normal life for, for the weekdays? How, would, how did that work yeah. exactly? Yeah, 
for most of the period I was working as an attorney. Okay. And I'd be an attorney Monday to Friday and when necessary, uh, doing what legal, some extra legal work on the weekend. But I'd be going up at least one night a week to Newport with the 80s and um, every second weekend. Initially, I began just one day of the weekend. So it was one day each two weeks hmm. with the weekend work. And eventually, as I became more serious, I went both days of every weekend. So it would be two days one weekend, nothing the next weekend, two days the next weekend. Um, and it was quite a commitment. And that was why when I was a law student, he wouldn't let me come up. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and then eventually, as I acquired more responsibility, he gave me other positions. He had me working in the library. So I'd come up on the off weekends, I'd come up to work on the library. And then he had me working on the transcriptions of his material. And so I'd also come up to work with him on those. And if there was some other task I had to do for him, I'd come up specially for that. There was also, there were also groups which planned the men's work and which planned the women's work. Um, they would come up during the week as well. So depending on the level of responsibility, it could really be quite demanding. Hmm. Well, I think uh, we'll, we might get more into that as or that period of your life and that aspect of the of the practical work a little bit later on. Um, for now, I want to change gears just a little bit um, because you mentioned the preparation. So I think this is a good opportunity to get into more of the content of your book. Um, I'll show it again here for viewers. Now, this one, um, I'll give a little bit of background, and then maybe if I say anything totally wrong, you can correct me when you, uh, in, in your response, Joseph. Um, this book, um, I believe, is the first one to be devoted completely to Gurdjieff's exercises. Now, we'll get into what exactly that means, um, because as far as I understand, for years after Gurdjieff's death, um, in most of the published accounts, at least. So this is for people who weren't necessarily directly involved in the Gurdjieff work through organizations like the Gurdjieff Foundation. Um, the, for people on the outside, um, no one really knew about these exercises. Now, there were hints in various published accounts about a kind of oral tradition or the, the need for um, kind of a direct passing on of certain aspects of this kind of esoteric knowledge. Um, but there was no real um, idea of what it actually was. And then, um, in, in more recent decades, there were little hints published in, in various accounts of these exercises, how, um, how Gurdjieff would give certain exercises to do, um, and, but with no, no in-depth explanation of what these actually entailed or how to go about engaging in these kinds of exercises. Now, in the last, now this brings us to, I'd say, the last uh, 10, 10, 15 years, where a lot of material has now been published. Um, we have the, the Paris meetings with Gurdjieff's French pupils from the, from the early 40s. And then um, we have, uh, of course, uh, Madame de Salzman, um, we have the, the published version of her um, notebooks slash notes slash diary, uh, The Reality of Being. And then um, a book that was published, uh, I believe, 2013, uh, if I remember correctly, um, Gurdjieff and the Women of the Rope, which is the 
um, transcription, or the, just it, it is the uh, notes of Catherine Hume and Salito Solano of their time working with Gurdjieff in the 30s. And in all these work there, in all these works, there are descriptions. Well, there are many references to the exercises, but also some some descriptions of the actual exercises them, uh, uh, themselves. But still, in a kind of fragmentary form, sometimes you'll just get a reference to. Uh, to an exercise with the name of it, and they'll, um, they will have been working on it for a period of time and asking Gurdjieff questions and getting advice. But still, there has never been a kind of um, concrete, in-depth analysis of, or, um, or just transcription of these exercises, because these have been kind of secretly guarded and passed on only in this oral tradition. So that's where you, Joseph, come in with your book, and uh, not only the decision to to publish it and to publish some exercises that have never been published before, but to actually do uh, an in-depth analysis of uh, of all of them at the same time. So looking at all of the elements, integrating them into a kind of chronology of Gurdjieff's career, and looking at their their um, um, your your theory of where they kind of come from, the influences that Gurdjieff might have um, used in order to. Um, create some of these exercises. So maybe to begin with, you can tell me if I got anything horribly wrong in there, and maybe can you tell us a bit about um, about your decision to to work on this book and um, and why you thought it was necessary to to publish what were previously considered to be secret things that should not be published. Yeah. First of all, everything you said was correct. There were no rivers there. Um, the next thing which it's useful to bear in mind is that the first serious book published on Gurdjieff's ideas was In Search of the Miraculous, mm -hmm. which appeared in 1949. And as I say in the book, the theoretical basis of the ideas, which is outlined there, is also the basis of the exercises for preparation and all the exercises. And he gives a very important clue to their origin when he speaks about what happens at Mount Athos with the ego exercise mm -hmm. um, and how, as the monk pronounces the word in Greek, ero, he, his sense of himself is moved from centre to centre, mm. um, <clears throat> brain to brain, from body to feeling and so on. And as I explained, these exercises were not shown to Uspensky. Mm -hmm. I don't believe Gurdjieff in them at that time. Gurdjieff, as I say in the book, I believe did not wish to use the exercises. He later decided that they were absolutely necessary. So that's why Uspensky didn't have them. And Uspensky's book really set the tone for how people perceived Gurdjieff and it's part of the reason why people often thought of Gurdjieff as being very intellectual and maybe even um, unnecessarily complex. The other book that was published published in 1950 was Belzebub's Tales to His Grandson, All and Everything. And some very important material for the exercises is found there and I explained that. Um, and even um, in book one, a very primitive form of, the ex of one of the exercises for morning preparation is given. But you'd never be able to work out from that 
or from the other references what he's speaking about in practical terms. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what my book tries to do so that even people who've been in Gurdjieff groups for a long time are now saying to me that as a result of my book, they can understand better what Gurdjieff is referring to in All and Everything. Mm -hmm. And they can see the practical meaning of what they had thought were simply abstract ideas, uh, probably there in order to baffle them. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. The next thing is that the very most important exercises of all were made public in the mid-1970s in Life is Real, Only Then When I Am. All the published versions have the basic exercises, uh, beginning with the soil preparing exercise and going on to some of the others. And in particular, they have in Life is Real, the third series, Gurdjieff speaks about a three-centered sensing of I am, sensing my own being, sensing my own presence, and he describes exercises for that. And as you'll see from the book, that's actually the foundation of my book, mm -hmm. the exercises in the third series. They were made public in the 1970s. And there's a very strange thing. Um, some people did use them, but a lot of people don't use them. And I often speak with people who are in Gurdjieff groups and they have never, ever worked with any of the exercises in the third series, which to me is extraordinary. Yep. Mr. Yeah. Mr. Rady used those exercises and he said, these are the basis of our work, um, those exercises. Um, so they were absolutely the most important exercises the next important series was the uh, series in Reality of Being, the Madame de Saltzman book. A tremendous deal was published there, including a rather, I don't say this to be pejorative, but primitive form of the four ideals exercise. It is the four ideals exercise which Gurdjieff gave Mr. Rady but many of the most important things are left out. And so that was the first one which I chose to publish. I published that as an article. And the reason for that was I don't really think the question is whether to publish or not to publish. I think it's a little bit deeper than that. I think the question is how is it published? Mm. Is it published well or is it published badly? Um, and so with the four ideals exercise, I thought that there was a real value in publishing the whole of it mm -hmm. for anybody who was seriously interested. And incidentally, I've had correspondence from people in, um, Gurdjieff group saying that the exercise as published now in full explains a lot of things that they hadn't understood before. And if you compare it with what's in Madame de Saltzman's book, I think it would be difficult to disagree with that. Mm -hmm. And then the other set of exercises which I placed in that book, so most of them were published in Life is Real, in Reality of Being, and then in the transcripts. And the transcripts were already published, um, so I commented on those. They are 
probably 80 to 90% of the exercises in the book. The other exercises which I placed in the book <clears throat> were the exercises from Mr. Aidy, which were in danger of being lost. Um, in particular, the color spectrum exercise and the clear impressions exercise. If I hadn't published them, they would have been lost. Mm -hmm. uh, and the color spectrum exercises I show does relate to something which Gurdjieff says in the third series, but doesn't continue. And I think that the color spectrum exercise helps to understand what Gurdjieff meant in the third series a bit better. So that's why I uh, published those. And mm -hmm. I do hope that they'll be of assistance to future generations. But also very importantly, very importantly, I think that a consideration of those exercises helps to show that really Gurdjieff was a mystic. Mm -hmm. there, a lot of people ask, what was Gurdjieff? And I mean, some people say he was a charlatan. He was just someone trying to um, make a good living out of uh, pretense to esoteric knowledge. Um, other people say he was um, a forerunner of the New Age movement. He was, uh, he borrowed things from the Sufis. He did this. I think I show that Gurdjieff is in fact a mystic, that there's something about the divine dimension and the connection with the divine, which is intrinsic to his system. That he really was, as he said to Dr. Lester, um, a colleague of the great teachers. And that it is not a left-hand path, as some people say. It's got nothing to do with occultism. It's much closer to mystic spirituality, uh, the Hesychast tradition in the Orthodox Church, for example. And so I'm hoping that um, people will see Gurdjieff as a more serious, um, a more serious, more spiritual teacher, more in line with someone like Meister Eckhart than someone like, for example, Alistair Crowley. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Joseph, in the preparation exercise that uh, that you lay out in its various forms, uh, there is a concentration on self-awareness and the body and the immediate atmosphere surrounding the person who's practicing the preparation first thing in the morning. And what's explained about it is that in your in your essays is that there is a kind of accessing to substances or hydrogens uh, which is a term we're most familiar with having read in search of the miraculous and, and that there is a kind of uh, connection that is being made to more ethereal non-physical energies and and things that our the totality of our being requires in order to subsist. I wonder if you can, for the layperson, uh, give some idea as to uh, what these hydrogens are, these substances are, and what the preparation exercise is designed to facilitate. Yeah. 
it's not possible to give a completely exhaustive black and white answer to something like that. Mm-hmm. It's it's embarking on something which has something of the element of a mystery about it. But this is my approach anyhow. Um, and it will change over time, I'm sure. But still, I'll make a start on it. What Gurdjieff says is that we have three foods. The first food is the ordinary food and drink which we take, and we need that for the nourishment of the body. He also says that air is a food, that air contains many substances which we need to nourish our bodies, and we know that if we stop breathing, we'll die shortly. But Gurdjieff also says that there are very fine substances in the air, substances which we don't know about, which are too subtle for us to be able to extract from the air and to chemically analyse, but which he says are nonetheless there. And these substances have a particular role in feeding what he calls our feeling. And our feeling, which brings us to a sense of ourselves, is very closely related to our essence, the real us, the real I, not just the personality. So to feed the deeper parts of me, I need to be able to receive the air and to be nourished by it. And Gurdjieff says that it's possible to obtain more nourishment from the air than we do right now if we understand his secret. And this is the secret of the sly man. He actually refers to it in In Search of a Miraculous. He says that um, what takes a yogi um, a day to do the sly man can do in a minute. He just prepares a drink and consumes it. And I think he's referring to these exercises involving the breathing, which is set out in the book. And, of course, um, the most important of these is found in the third series and in reality of being. And then Gurdjieff said there's also a third food, the food of impressions, that just as we would die very quickly if we couldn't breathe, we would die even faster if we could no longer receive impressions. And he says there are a whole range of impressions. The fact that impressions can be a food for us means that impressions are material. And this is central to Gurdjieff's system, that impressions are actually material. We know that some things don't seem to be material, but they are. We know that sunlight is always always depositing materials on the earth. Well, Gurdjieff says impressions also deposit a material inside us. But as with food and as with air, we can digest them better or worse. We know that if we gulp down our food, we don't get the maximum nourishment from it. Same with air, same with impressions. So that... In these exercises, Gurdjieff says the way to obtain more from impressions is to collect myself. And if I have a sensation of my body and I'm consciously receiving the air with an intention to retain the active elements in the air and I'm consciously receiving the impressions, I can make them, I can assimilate them 
and make them operate within me in a far more effective way than otherwise they could. And that's why in these exercises, the air will be received and then might be directed to different parts of the body. And the same with impressions. I'm receiving impressions all the time, but I receive them more consciously in the preparation and the exercises. And at so many stages, it, they are designed for that. For, so for example, in the relaxation, I make a point of um, stressing what Mr. and Mrs. Aidy said about relaxing very fine parts of the body, parts of the body we never think to relax ordinarily, underneath the chin, the eyeballs, the eyeball in the eye socket, this very fine attention brought to those parts of the body is itself a nourishment of um, parts of me which otherwise would not be fed, at least not fed that efficiently and to that degree. So the exercises and preparations are maybe a sort of a way of extracting superfood mm. from the air and the impressions which we uh, are always receiving, but now receiving consciously. Now, there's much more to be said, but uh, I don't want to just be speaking forever. Yeah. Oh, that was pretty good. Thank you. Well, um, well, yeah, there's, there's so much there and uh, so many directions we can go to. Maybe um, I want to make a connection with um, some of the more general ideas um, in what you just said about the preparation there, and specifically about the attention directed towards impressions. And how that acts, um, and how that acts as a as a kind of digestion of impressions, um, akin to the di digestion that goes on in our food, because of course one of the main things that Gurdjieff relates in, well, all of his material is that we are asleep, that we act mechanically, that we do things automatically, and so in his description of the human machine or the human organism, there is this process of the digestion of food and water, which we can. Um, we can see uh, and, and we can know that it takes place automatically. We don't have to think or direct our you know, stomach to engage in digestion or, or excretion. That stuff all just happens automatically. So there's an, an automaticity to the digestion of food that um, is pretty well, tangible and, and obvious to, to our, our perception. But then if we look at something like breathing, we can and do breathe automatically without our conscious perception. Of course, we, we breathe when we're asleep at night. We breathe when we're engaged in any kind of activity um, with our atten attention directed with it to anything. So we're automatically breathing and we might not even be aware that we're breathing. But the difference, um, it, the difference with breathing is that we, can, we do have some degree of control over it and we can observe it much more closely than we can observe our digestion, for instance. I mean, we might feel a little bit of um, rumbling down there, um, but other than that, it pretty much goes, goes automatically. So there's an attention that can be directed to the breath um, that, isn't, uh, that, that isn't found in the digestion of food. And the same thing with the impressions that we receive, uh, that we receive our sensory impressions of, um, of the world around us and the world around us, which is our body too. We, re we are constantly receiving sensory impressions from our bodies, signals from our bodies, whether they be 
um, pressure on our skin or the the movement the movements that we make the postures that we take all of the all of those signals are being sent through the nervous system and um, on some level we can or cannot be aware of them again we can be totally unaware of our postures or our movements um, like you you gave the example of, a, of, the, of the touching of your face that that George Ady pointed out we engage we have all of these habits that we don't even realize that we do but again like breathing we we can come to observe them and to to um, ideally I think in Gurdjieff's case to have a, a kind of a conch, um, <clears throat> a constant presence that is observing um, what the body is doing and and what is being received on all these levels so the, so there is that addition of consciousness of that um, directedness towards um, our own organism that I think is intimately tied with that um, with that digestion process so um, so it seems to me that the the preparation is a way of it's it's kind of like a, um, a mini mono, a mini monasticism. It's giving yourself a little period of time during the day in the morning to 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 be a monk and to engage in some kind of um, activity. To then, um, because I, well, because we can't do that all the time, or at least when you start out, it's not like you you need to kind of practice at it, right? So, is that would you say that that is a good purpose for the the preparation, um, both to um, to add the, the to, to bring the addition of consciousness to the processes in our body and our manifestations that are ordinarily automatic, and also to um, um, well, maybe the way to, to express the second idea is to ask what are you, why is it called the preparation? What are we preparing for each morning? Yeah We've only started on this, but um, because there are other elements which uh, are relevant to the preparation and the exercises. But the one you've mentioned now, Harrison, is extremely important. It's a preparation for the whole of my life, which comes after it. Uh, the very That very minute, I'm preparing for this moment and what will come after it. And in the book, I tried to show how Mr. Aidy and Mrs. Aidy uh, followed Gurdjieff in um, that at the end of the, by the end of the preparation, I should have a program for that day. And on the website, I've put a few posts just on the program. The program is very important um, so that at the end of the preparation, for example, I've made an appointment with myself that I will try and come to myself, for example, at 9 a.m., 12 noon, 3 p.m., 6 p.m. But, of course, you can change the times. It might be, for example, 9.17 a.m. Uh, 1 11 p.m., 6 24 p.m., whatever. Um, so that at those, I can't have the preparation and that state all the way during the day, but I can have the influence of the preparation during the day. And having those appointments helps to make a connection to the preparation. And then, in addition, the task for the day is set at the preparation. So in the preparation, I come to my aim. Gurdjieff spoke about the importance of a name. Um, for example, to die an honourable death, not to die like a dog. Um, but how do I die an honourable death? I need a plan. 
And so in the preparation, I remind myself, yes, this is my aim. I wish to die an honourable death. I need a plan. What will I do today? Let's say for today, my plan is to observe the sensation of my right hand. And then while I'm working at a particular task, I try and divide my attention between myself and what I'm doing. And I use the sensation of the right hand as a reminder. And then I have these appointments during the day. So all these are methods of having the influence of the preparation available during the day. I remember when I first started with Mr. Aidy and I was finding my way, I very soon decided that I would take, for example, and it was, it was 3 p.m. That was one of the appointments. And the very first day I'd taken 3 p.m. as a time for an appointment and I was going to try to be aware of my feet on the ground at the appointed time, I was in a conference with a barrister, uh, a trial attorney in the USA. And it's to me now as clear as if it happened last week. I was in his chambers. I had my feet on the ground. I'm speaking with him. The sunlight's coming in through the window. And I, I'm almost at sea. But there was an effort. There was an effort to remember myself at three o'clock and to remember my feet on the ground and not to let him know that I was doing something. Yeah, I wasn't going to suddenly stop, adopt the Buddha posture and chant Om or something like that. I had to continue to play the role of his instructing solicitor during this legal conference. Sure. Uh, another occasion, I was having an MRI scan. And um, in the preparation, I made um, the plan that I would try to specifically remember myself during the MRI scan. Again, very vivid moment because it's not easy to do that um, during a scan. Or uh, Gurdjieff gave examples and he linked some of them to his exercises. I might know that I'm going to be speaking to this person. I make an effort to remember myself while I'm speaking to this person. In particular, if it's a person that I find difficulties with, you know, mm -hmm. one of those uh, uncomprehending idiots that get sent my way. Yeah, not to lose my patience with them, um, not to be angry, that type of thing. Mm. Well, one of the... Uh... One of the components to some of the versions of the preparation was this kind of affirmation of I am that could be breathed in and breathed out, in with the I and out with the am. And in thinking on it, uh, one of the ideas that Gurdjieff proposes is that his work is all about the growth of being and the evolution of consciousness. And the the means to that would seem to be the expansion of consciousness of one's own self and a awareness of one's own thinking and feeling and being. And I wonder, Joseph, if you could, uh, I don't know how connected to that specifically it is, but it struck me that I am those, that those very simple, uh, words, uh, goes some way towards, the acknowledgement of, of one's being to oneself. 
And I wonder if you might comment on that. Elan, almost the whole of everything Gurdjieff brought is summed up in those words, because as he said to uh, Morris Nichol, behind real I lies God. And um, he sometimes said that from one perspective, only God can really say, I am. Um, when we have this affirmation, I am, it's good for me, the words actually mean something to me. Um, I should have some sense proceeding in me every time I speak those words. And I'll find that I'm engaged on a mystery. What they mean to me is going to change and develop. And some days I'll be in view of something, something very high. And on other days, it will seem to be distant. It will seem to be lost. That means I'm lost. Real I is a very big thing. Um, real I is not just in time. It might be right to say that it's in eternity, but manifests in time. And to say am, what does that mean? It's not just subsistence. There's an existence as well. There is, as you said, an affirmation. I'm not just passively, as it were, experiencing this life. I am participating in my life. And because real I is connected with God, the more I am present to myself, the closer I am to the experience of the presence of God. This is why I say that Gurdjieff is really a mystic. Um, and he became more overtly religious the longer he lived. So that at the end of his life, he was attending church regularly. Um, and this is a direction which many of Gurdjieff's major pupils took. Bennett attended mass every Sunday. Uh, I'm told that Madame de Saltzman did as well. Um, really, Ilan, what do you ask? Uh, I could I could expand in so many directions. That's just a first approach to it. Does that address the sort of thing you were inquiring about? Oh, yes. I mean, th these are the big questions, aren't they? And um, there are so many dimensions to them, so many... Uh, realizations that we we try to come to personally in looking at this material and and understanding it on a experiential level as well and just to get back to the sheer fact of your publishing this material as a as a means as a bridge to know uh, or have a, at least the potential to know more uh what what Gurdjieff and and uh, Ospensky and others were saying theoretically to uh, to have that direct experience and that can be uh, possibly achieved and known through 15 minutes, 20 minutes in the morning 
through this exercise, through the four ideals, to know for oneself that uh, that personal growth uh, is possible, is uh, is there um, in potential if if we choose to practice these things and to uh, discipline ourselves enough to every day consider how it is we're thinking on our being. Uh, so there's, uh, it's like you say, Joseph, there's no, you know, it's not something you can answer in, in a few sentences. It, it's a, it's a process as much as it is a, uh, a definition. Well, maybe I, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll move it in a, I'll, I'll direct that conversation into another area, and that is the body itself and the and sensation, because I believe the last exercise that Gurdjieff gave George Ady was the, a simple one, and it too it's it's a variation, basically on the on one of the exercises in the third series, which is associating the I am I with the the sensation or I with the with the solar plexus and am with the the spinal column and and the brain and for in in Gurdjieff's system that is the like there is the the i'd say the emotional presence in the solar plexus and then the the, the whole range of of the sensory apparatus in the in the spinal column and so so the am in that case is associated with the body and the totality of sensation so there's the i which like you said Joseph might have this aspect of eternity that it, it it only manifests in time but there's an, an eternal aspect to it and then am is this is associated with the with the body itself with the with the flesh with the with sensation and there are these two aspects of of our being um so i joseph would you like to comment on that and specifically on on the importance of sensation and the body for for gurdjieff yeah. When I say I, which I is speaking? What is the quality of that I? Who is speaking and from where? And then when I say am, what is the quality of that and from where does it come? This is why um, the way Mr. Adi brought it, we would affirm that three times three, sensing it where it sounded in the body. Because if I speak those words, they sound in the body and they will infallibly tell me something about my state. I might not be able to put it into words, but if at the end of a preparation, I speak those words, I intone them with that meaning it will tell me something about my state and my body. And I will feel something in my body. I will sense it and I will feel it. And this quality of sensation, this quality of feeling builds a bridge to the higher qualities of feeling and intellect that are available to me. Because there are higher centres which are always contemplating eternity, which are always receiving grace from the divine level, but I'm not in contact with them. 
excuse me, but if I have this sense of myself, of my own reality, my own being, the truer and the firmer it is, when I say firm, I don't mean rigid, granite-like, but there's a certain certainty which is also dynamic, a certain firmness which is also dynamic, like a martial artist in motion. <coughs> Excuse me. The more I have of that, the closer I come to the to higher, more mysterious experiences of this. So that the eye opens, it expands, it includes more, and yet the focus remains here. There's still a central place. My personality, my ordinary fears, anxieties, concerns, the vanity, the pride, can't hold when I'm in that state. They fall off and they will return later. They're only made passive during the period of the preparation. But having had that state of greater clarity, greater being, a truer, cleaner reality, that gives me a sort of a point of comparison with what's going to happen during the day. So that everyone that worked with us would say they'd bring observations to the 80s all the time. During the day, I felt a big gap between how I'd been in the preparation and how I was now. <coughs> Excuse me. And that very gap, that very comparison calls me. It's a help. If I don't just react guiltily with what Gurdjieff called bad conscience, saying, oh, I'm a bad boy, I, I'm forgetting myself, aren't I bad, slap on the wrist. If I take it as a reminder, yes, my present state now is low, but my state doesn't have to be that low. I know it was better not too long ago, earlier today. That can call me. And again, I receive some of the influence of what I came to in the preparation. That's just my formulation, but you will have your own. And um, this was one of the advantages of being in a real group. We could share our own formulations. We could share our own perspectives. You'd see people changing, see people developing. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah.